You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26, Jesus heals a man with a demon. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you done with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for we are many. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the, into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So Jesus gave, him, gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came, back, came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You may be seated. All right, well, last week, uh, Pastor Ryan taught us uh, the nice classic story in the verses before these ones about Jesus and his disciples in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And if you heard that message early on in his message, uh, Ryan said how thankful he was that Andrew had given him such uh, easy layups of passages to teach through. Now, I'm human, so I struggle with jealousy. And when Ryan said that, I I already knew that I'd be teaching the following week, and I already knew the passage uh, that I'd have to teach. Uh, And to be honest, it doesn't feel like a layup to me. this, this feels like the last-minute shot you take, double-teamed at half-court, wishing you'd passed or that it had been passed to someone else, uh, but there's no time left, so it falls to you to take the shot. Um, and if you don't understand that or you just don't like basketball analogies, that's going to set you up really well for how well this sermon's going to go. So <laughs> we're off to a great start already. <clears throat> now, why do I say all of this? Why do I, why do I say that? Um, because this is a passage that, while famous... Uh, is not an easy one for us to grapple with in Western society. It's uncomfortable for a number of reasons. So much so uh, that when we study this passage, it's easy for us to grab hold of the little random details we see in the story that really don't matter um, as much as the main point of the story, simply because there's something we can more easily grapple with, or there's just no answer to a question we might find from that, and we would rather dwell on something we can't answer uh, than the difficult things that we don't want to dwell on, like questions surrounding demons or or us caring more about our stuff 
than the transformation of a man uh, saved by Jesus. And so to avoid uh, the deeper questions, we will ask um, questions like, why did Jesus send them into the pigs? What happened to the demons once the pigs drowned? Was the dude buck naked or was he at least wearing some sort of loincloth undies? You know, like, what is going on? And these are all things we don't really need to wrestle with uh, and things that will definitely derail a small group or home group simply because it's easier than dealing with the concept of another human being being oppressed and possessed by spiritual beings who have completely wrecked this man's life. So we're going to do our best to avoid those traps and look at the real difficulties of the passage that make us uncomfortable. Because if we don't, then we won't see the real beauty of Jesus' power to rescue and save and redeem. And I want to see that. So another problem that we might face when coming to this passage is living in the extremes of interest in demonic activity. Now, what do I mean by that? Two extremes Christians sometimes take when they uh, come to passages like this and others that mention demons. On one side of the spectrum, we have those who hate talking about it and aren't even sure if they believe in angels and demons. Perhaps they reject the notion outright. Well, a new Gallup poll uh, as of May of this year shows the difference in belief in spiritual entities among Americans from 2001 to today. It just came out. Uh, and it shows a pretty bad decline. Even so, uh, I honestly thought the numbers would be worse. Uh, but 74% of people today uh, say they believe in God. 69% say they believe in angels. 67% in heaven. 59% in hell. And 58% the devil. Such an optimistic culture we have, right? Uh, they, they like the idea of God and angels and heaven, but not so much when it comes to hell and the devil. And those numbers are down somewhere between 16 and 10% since 2002 when I was a kid. Now, polls don't work the way where I could say, uh, you know, that this means that some 42% of you in here don't believe this was the devil or his demons in the story. It actually doesn't work that way. Uh, the study went on to show uh, that the, the belief in these areas is actually stronger across a variety of categories. In fact, it's strongest amongst these three categories. Uh, Protestants, frequent churchgoers, and Republicans. So if you're here today, you probably tick one of those boxes, perhaps all three, uh, and the likelihood of you believing in angels and demons is significantly higher. So don't go looking at your neighbor wondering if you're the weird one or if they're the weird one. You're both weird ones. Uh, embrace it. But that said, there are certainly Christians who reject the notion of demons uh, entirely, and they chalk this stuff up to mental illness uh, and really anything other than spiritual beings who would tempt, torture, and possess another human being. Then there's the, uh, the other extreme uh, group of you who, who love talking about this demon stuff. You've watched The Exorcist 38 times. You've read Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness 39 times. And you see demons around every corner. Now, I'll remind this subgroup of Christians that not everything bad that happens in our lives is because of the devil or his minions. Case in point was last week's message. Uh, Pastor Ryan uh, showed us that Jesus was the one who definitely sent his disciples 
into the storm. Bad things will happen in our lives. Hard times will come, and when they come, we can't just instantly say, demons did it. Or when you've messed up, you're tempted to say, the devil made me do it. Or you may miss God being right at the center of the tragedy you're facing or the redemptive story that's playing out because you're so busy looking for demons or something else to blame. So we need to strike a good balance as we approach Uh, This subject, whether you're totally fascinated or totally tuned out, uh, let's try to see what the passage says and leave those preconceived ideas at the door as much as we can. So let's get into it. Verse 26 again says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now the first thing to note is where they sailed to and where this was taking place. Luke calls this the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, Now, this story is found in all the synoptic gospels, uh, with Mark's account being identical to Luke's in that he references the country of the Gerasenes. However, Matthew refers to to these people um, as the land or the country of the Gadarenes. So who are these people, and what's with the different names? Gerasa was a city of Decapolis, or that Decapolis meaning the ten cities. Gerasa was what you could say is the capital city of that region of Palestine. And to the Romans, there was no other city like it in that country. To the Roman audience, when Luke said the, the Gerasan area, the, the, the land of Gerasa, that would be an easy identifier for someone with, with the, the Roman mindset or, or the Greeks, they would understand immediately, oh, you're referring to the Gentile region in Palestine uh, near Israel. These are not Israelites. This region was a region governed by a Syrian governor filled with people who would be referred to as Gentiles, not the Jews. So why does Matthew call them Gadarenes? Because the city just off the southern coast of Galilee uh, wasn't the city of Gerasa, the capital, uh, but it was the city of Gadara. Now, Gadara was a city of no comparison to Gerasa, their capital, but it was a major city um, of these people with the closest proximity to the people of Israel, and it was certainly the city with the most theological importance to the people of Israel. In the reign of David and Solomon uh, and Uh, in the the earliest conquests of Joshua and and the judges, this would have been part of Israel's territory. In fact, if you compare maps in the back of your Bible, if you have them, uh, you'll see that this area that this would be in would have been allotted to uh, to the tribe of Gad, one of the 12 tribes or 12 sons of Jacob, uh, a.k.a. Israel. Now, why is that important? Well, it really isn't. But if this city was named after Gad, which is very likely in one way or another, then the prophecy in Genesis 49, when Jesus, or not when Jesus, when Jacob was speaking a blessing over each of his sons, he had this one for Gad, where he says, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. And that'd give us a nice double meaning, because Gad was definitely raided by raiders many times and also did their fair share of raiding and, and warring, themselves. But interestingly enough, in the country of the Gadarenes, a guy who was overcome by a troop, or in the Roman terms, a legion, at last did overcome them, though certainly not on his own. Now you see how easy it is to get off on rabbit trails. 
um, that lead to things that we really don't need to be talking about. What's the real subject? So easy. But it is cool stuff, and it's easy then to see why Matthew, whose gospel was written with so many references specifically to the Jewish people, would mention this region as the country of the Gadarenes. It was meant um, to be the Gentile inhabitants of their old city, Gad. Now, this isn't a contradiction of where things took place. Basically, the entire southeastern shore could be described as the land of the Gadarenes or the land of the Gerasenes. The gospel authors were not trying to connect us to a specific location of geography, but were making connections to the audience in ways that they would understand and find important. And the real reason I'm explaining this to you is to say that this region was the Syrian-controlled region in Palestine. It was a place that good Jewish people don't go. They don't want to live here. They don't worship the God of Israel here. In fact, from what I've read about Gadara, this was supposedly a place of worship to Poseidon. They had a temple of Poseidon uh, by the Hellenists or the Greeks. And this is significant even in the title of our Luke sermon series, Good News for Everyone. Jesus was in fact bringing good news, not just for the Jews, but good news that would affect everyone. And so in this moment, Jesus was taking the gospel internationally, you could say. And why do I find that relevant? Jesus just crossed the sea through a storm to go to a Gentile area, to a graveyard, the tombs of an unclean city, where demons dwell inside of people and unclean animals roam the hillside, potentially that hillside on the top of it being a temple to a false god of the Greeks. This was about as unclean a place as a good Jewish rabbi could go. And it's exactly where Jesus meant to be. He walked right into it. The opposite of places everyone would have thought he would go. Now what might that tell us about where he would send us into? And we'll talk about that more later. But this was for sure so that heaven would look like what's described in Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, that says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Jesus was not just for the Jews. His kingdom was not just for them. But his good news of his kingdom was for all people. All right, well, now let's read about this guy who Jesus went all this way to meet. In verse 27, we see when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he wore no clothes, and he not lived in the house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now this is crazy stuff. Okay, Jesus stepped out on land and was met by a man from the city who had demons. And this is kind of downplayed in our culture, but it isn't especially an unusual thing in the Gospels. Uh, already in Luke, uh, we've been introduced to people being rescued by demonic oppression. 
You could turn back there, or I'll, I'll put it on the screen. If, if you remember Luke 4, there was a man uh, with an unclean spirit uh, who came to the synagogue, essentially their local church, and Jesus commanded the demon to come out of that guy. And then also in chapter 4, you get that random little blurb about Jesus healing a bunch of people who were demon-possessed who would cry out declaring that Jesus really was the Son of God. Then we read just a few weeks ago in Luke 8, we meet some of Jesus' female disciples who are following around Jesus and the Twelve, and we're introduced uh, to three of them by name, including a rather famous one, Mary Magdalene. Uh, you don't need it on the screen. You can look up a few verses. Luke 8, verse 2 says, Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now, in case you missed that, Mary had not one, not two, not six, but seven demons cast out of her. How did they even know that? Had she some sort of experience like disassociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder where there were seven other distinct voices speaking to her and maybe even through her that all left at Jesus' word? Or when Jesus cast out the demons out of her, he was like, Yep, that was seven. Dang, girl, what have you been up to? You've got to stop it with the Ouija boards. You know, like, what was, what was going on? How did he know? How did he know that this is, this is what, what it was? You know what? It doesn't matter. Either way, it's super impressive. Some people just refuse to believe in the spiritual realm and actual spirits that could torment a human in various ways. And I get it. It's terrifying and horrible. And why would you want to let yourself believe that? But if you believe in anything miraculous that God has done or that Jesus did in his ministry, why do we stop at the demons and spirits? Intelligent and powerful beings who hate us and are determined to destroy us and God's work any way that they can. Well, it's just easier. It's easier to chalk that up to mental illness. You know, the interesting thing about disassociative identity disorder, besides, well, everything, it's very interesting, um, is that it's very typically brought on by severe trauma as a way to help the person cope with terrible memories. Treatment is, is talk therapy, and it's said to be able to help, but that, in, that this condition cannot be cured, and it's uh, to last for years before there, there's, there's really any control over it, um, and can just be a lifelong, regular experience for the person. How tragic. But let's say that's easier for you to believe that this is, is what the Bible is referring to when it's referring to demonic possession like these stories. Jesus speaks, and these people are healed. What does that take? The, the rewiring of the brain the healing of trauma from memories they were unable to deal with, the removal of personalities that built over years or decades, all gone in an instant. Today we have really well-meaning, really intelligent, really hard-working people in the fields of psychology and medicine with decades of research and study and billions of dollars of funding and technology, all working in tandem with one another to try to help people with mental illness be cured or at least be helped in whatever way, great or small, that we can manage. And we still seem to know very little 
about how to help these folks. We live in the most prosperous nation of all human history, the freest nation in all human history, with more knowledge being churned out by us every year than was available in all the time of the Romans, Greeks, Persians, Babylonians, Assyrians, and Egyptian empires combined. Yet our streets, under our bridges, along our rivers, filling facilities, are millions of people suffering with mental illnesses that we have no real hope of treating in any real meaningful way. Jesus speaks, and they're cured instantly. Yeah, I'd say that's impressive. But now let's say you believe in the spiritual and the supernatural, that there is indeed much more to this universe than just the physical realm that we can explain and, and interact with, that there are powers in this world that are not societal, they're not physical, but they're spiritual, and that some of these spirits are malevolent, well, that is useful in understanding certain things in the world where truly horrendous evils take place. It's nice to be able to, to blame those things on something outside of humanity. But it's certainly not always honest. Humans are, are very capable of horrible evil. Now, is that evil somehow spurred on by spiritual forces? I think sometimes, yes. But who cares what I think? Let's look at the passage. What did these demons do to this man? I'm interested that we're not told what made this man like this or his progression that brings him to this state. We're just told the state of him in this moment in time and just a little bit of history about him. There's no origin story of the demon-possessed man. But what we're told about him is that he had demons. He wasn't wearing clothes, and he lived in the tombs. Verse 29 tells us a little more from the past that he'd been bound with chains and shackles, but he'd broken them and was driven out into the desert or the wilderness. Mark gives us a little bit more info uh, about the man. Mark 5, 5, it says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is a tormented fellow. He'd be the kind of man you might encounter on the city streets or on a bus, and if you encounter the man, you'd probably do your best to avoid him at all cost. But in whatever culture there was in this town of Gadara, it's clear that this man was an outlier. This was not a normal thing. This was not a normal guy. This dude was scary. Um, this was the, the crazy naked guy bound by chains. This is the guy that little kids would ride their bikes by on their way to, to school and they'd yell mean jokes at her. Or maybe they'd sneak up on a dare and throw rocks at him and scurry away before they get caught, you know. Their parents would have to tell them to stop harassing the naked demon-possessed guy because who knows when he'd break his chains and break their necks. Now, eventually, he did break his chains. We don't know if he broke any necks, but he left the city. We're told this guy has taken up residence in the tombs. Apparently, he felt more comfortable around the dead than the living. So now this guy moved to the local graveyard. That's kind of inconvenient, right? If anybody wants to try to have a funeral... Or go visit the graveside of their loved ones, you're very likely going to meet naked Norman out there. Now, I'm sorry if your name is Norman. Um, if you're offended, it's a great name. Um, just rolls off the tongue. So. Like I said, this is a place where the Jews are not supposed to go. They're not supposed to go here. 
They could be made ceremonially unclean by living amongst the dead or touching the dead. This seems a strange place for Jesus to go to. And I imagine his disciples were very uncomfortable with the situation. I kind of picture, you know, like Peter, he, he sees this unfolding. They, they row across and he sees this, you know, naked crazy guy running out from the tombs. And he's just like, he grabs one of those oars out of the boat and is like, I'm ready to clock this guy. Something's going down. Um, all, this, all this is happening by every metric we have to gauge the health of a person's life, you would see this man and think this man has serious, serious problems. Most of us would look at this man and think he was a total lost cause. Can you imagine someone in more dire of a situation, lower on the totem pole of society? But his reaction to seeing Jesus is notable. And it's the way that just about everyone in the scriptures with an unclean spirit or a demon reacted to meeting Jesus. They fall down before him and declare who he is. This demon declared Jesus as the son of the most high God. He was actually answering the disciples' question. If you remember from, from last week's study or you, you, you look back a couple of verses, um, they make it through the storm. Jesus calms the wind and the waves and tell, you know, tells the storm to be still, knock it off. Uh, and it obeys him. And the disciples are freaked out. And they ask the question in verse 25, who then is this that he commands even the wind and water and they obey him? The demons knew the answer. This was Jesus, the son of the most high God. He recognizes Jesus. I heard it said that demons have an orthodox view of Jesus and they shudder. If only we could get some pastors to have an orthodox view of Jesus and shudder, we'd make more of an impact for his kingdom. That was a real sucker punch to Christendom. James famously says, James 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know who Jesus is. They also know something else about him, that he is their judge. And we see that because they begged Jesus to not torment them. Verse 31 tells us that they begged Jesus to not command them to depart into the abyss. Well, what does that mean? Uh, you could go down a very interesting rabbit trail studying the meaning of the word abyss in Scripture. Uh, but in Greek, it's used to describe a variety of things, including a holding place for the dead. But eventually, it would lead you to Revelation 9 and the story about the angel who opens up the bottomless pit, or the Greek in this word is abyss, where the demon, the demonic creatures come out and start wreaking havoc on people, and these demons have as their king a demon called Abaddon or Apollyon, meaning place of destruction or destroyer. Then you'd get to Revelation 20 when Satan is cast into said abyss. And some interpreters say that Abaddon or Apollyon is just another title for the devil or Satan. <clears throat> Others say that he's probably a different demon and an underling to Satan. Who really knows such things? We can assume, though, is that this place is not a very nice place. The demons don't want to go there. It's a prison for the demons. And their only escape is for an appointed time until this happens, just a few verses later in Revelation 20, Revelation 20.10, and the devil who had deceived them and was thrown, into the lake of, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, 
and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we're told the end for the demons. They're tormented day and night forever and ever. And these demons know it. They fear it. They beg that their time be extended just a little bit longer. And for his reasons, God has allowed that that time be extended a good long while. In the meantime, we see the destruction and torment that they put people through. We see this man and all the suffering that he's endured and caused for these demons to be part of his life. They've wrecked any semblance of normalcy. He's without family and friends. He's without any sense of decency. He's without meaning or purpose. He's without possessions or comforts. He's been brought to the pit of despair by these demons, yet the demons have the audacity to beg Jesus to not be thrown into their own pit of despair. Again, we're not told the origin story of this man, but if your heart doesn't break for him, then it's made of stone. Many a time, these demons would control this man, so much so that they'd control his body to break free of his chains and lead him out into the desert. But they weren't breaking his real chains. This man was in bondage in the deepest, most terrifying way imaginable. He was a slave to evil spirits who wrecked his life. And this is such a tragic picture that it's largely regarded as freakish and irrelevant in our culture. It's a picture of a host of demonic activity that is possessed and is actively destroying this man. But if you're in ministry for any amount of time, especially I'd say in youth ministry, you're going to meet parents who are in agony over children who are enslaved by addictive materials, chained by their addictive lifestyles, and could be described as the very epitome of lostness and loneliness. And you cannot look into these parents' eyes and and think something like, oh dear, these, these parents must have been very hard on them. Or that their grandparents should have sent them a much better birthday present, you know, or been around for a while. How could they have ended up this way? You can't trivialize things to this level. There is a spiritual element to these things, and I fear more demonic activity that we fail to understand or give credence to. Now, aside from the apostles themselves, uh, Christians aren't anywhere, at least in Scripture, in, encouraged or commanded to go and you know, start a ministry of exorcism and go cast out demons out of every rock and person you find. Not saying that we can't be used in that way, but we are certainly told over and over in Scripture to resist the devil throughout Scripture. Resist the works of the devil, the lies of the devil. Part of the reason we in our Christian communities, our little Christian community bubbles, live in such comfort, and without any real desire for the transforming power of Jesus Christ, is because we don't confront things that demand the transforming power of Christ. We shy away from the hard things. We insulate ourselves against scary circumstances. We beg God to not send us into the storms or across the sea to the places where ceremonial purity goes to die places like demons and graveyards and pigs, to the people who are demonized, marginalized, and hopeless. Are we really going to leave it to pop culture? 
to confront the least, the last, and the left out in our society? Will we huddle away from a world that so desperately needs the transforming power of Jesus? Jesus walked right out into it all. Then and now. Without the intervention of the living Christ, there's no hope for this man at all or for anyone. Which brings us to our Bay of Pigs incident. So let's read how Jesus responds to these demons. It's quite surprising, I think, to everyone. Verse 30. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Okay. Now, if you want a couple of small group questions to completely derail your small group tonight, I've got them for you. Why did Jesus allow the demons to enter the pigs? Why would demons want to go into the pigs? Why do demons seem to need to inhabit a living creature? What happened to the demons when the pigs drowned? Did demons like or dislike water? I can make some educated guesses about all of these things, but ultimately we don't know. We're not told. The passage isn't about that. When you start asking questions like, can demons possess animals? You've lost, okay? Your small group is lost. Just pack it up and go home because someone's going to answer with, well, I had this border collie once that I think was demon-possessed. <clears throat> and if you know some of my crazy stories, you, you, you know that I think I had a sheep that might have been demon-possessed. But who cares, okay? It's not the point of the story. We get so caught up in our love for animals that we, we forget or ignore the transformational power of God in a life, in the life of this man. I know many of you are animal lovers, and I've often said myself that if, if I wasn't a pastor, I'd be content to be a dog walker or a dog trainer because oftentimes I, I, I like dogs more than humans. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's, that's pretty bent, that's pretty, pretty messed up, that, that we would care more about the physical condition of our animals than the spiritual condition of our fellow man. We're on that in a minute. But the whys of this story won't be answered by the scriptures. Okay, whatever happened, it resulted in the death of a herd of pigs. And we'll see in the next verses, that caused some real problems for Jesus in that region. Nobody knows for sure why Jesus allowed this. Some commentaries say it was because Jesus wanted to rid the region of pigs because they were unclean animals and the practice of keeping them shouldn't have been happening in Israel, even if this was a Gentile-controlled region. Um, some say it was because this was the demon's last-ditch effort to thwart Jesus' ministry. And it's certainly possible. But what we see is that Jesus allows it. He gave them permission. And so this brings up the fascinating question of, why does God give permi permission to demons to do terrible things? Have you ever read Job? Why would God allow Satan to decimate Job's life like that? The funny thing about Job is that that's a long book, um, and we never really get the answer to that question. 
at the end, God shows up. He shows up and speaks, but he doesn't answer that question. Instead, he describes himself and how his wisdom is far and above and beyond anything that we can begin to imagine and, it, and invites Job to trust him. Could God have good reason for allowing demons to do their work against him and against humans? Of course. But again, if we aren't told what that is, we're left to surmise. And sometimes we do a good job of that, most of the time we don't. What we do know is God is good. He's infinitely wise and knowledgeable. And he's way more powerful than these demons. And that's who is standing before them at this moment. Jesus, the man, the creator God in the flesh. One thing I think we are safe to assume from this moment is, a, is the statement Jesus would be making about the soul of this man. That the conversion of this one man was more significant than this herd of pigs. Jesus viewed the salvation of this one man as being of greater importance than whatever fallout came from the herd of pigs drowning in the sea. And that goes together quite nicely with what Jesus is going to teach his disciples later in Luke chapter 12, where he says that we're worth more than many sparrows. Maybe you've heard that, uh, that saying, but it's interesting that it comes after the statement about God having authority to cast people into hell and to fear him. Well, now, at first read, you'd say, well, yeah, duh. I mean, unless you really like pigs or sparrows, you know, a couple pigs. I mean, hey, even a couple hundred pigs certainly isn't worth one man's soul, right? It makes you wonder the price we place on our own souls versus the price we attach to the souls of others. This, as we'll see, did cost a lot of people a lot of money, and also it cost Jesus his ability to do anything else in this region. There was great cost to setting this man free. What is the significance of a single man's conversion? I came across this quote, which is attributed to John Newton. Something to ponder over with coffee or with some other Christians in your small group. He says, to convert one sinner from the error of his way is an event of greater importance than the deliverance of a whole kingdom from temporal evil. That's someone who believes in hell. John Newton was a man with his own story of transformational power of Christ. There was a man who was haunted by the things he had done in his past. He went from being a slaver to a fervent abolitionist. His understanding of the gospel was that the salvation of a single sinner is of greater importance than delivering an entire kingdom from temporal evils, like the evils of human trafficking he fought so hard against. I mean, fill in the blank. What evil you want? The evils of disease. The evils of warfare. Evils of bigotry. Evils of pornography. Of rape. Child abuse. Etc., etc. How much is a soul worth to God? What price would you put on your soul? What price would you put on your neighbor's soul? What price would you put on the crazy guy screaming at passers-by? And what if that salvation came at a cost of 
your pocketbook feeling a little lighter, of your community and your family suffering? Are those temporal, those temporary afflictions worth the cost of saving one man's soul? I'd like to think so, but would I live like it? Let's see how the the people responded to this and, and Jesus, what he does in the situation. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who'd seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. This is all quite fascinating. The people taking care of the pigs, they see what just happened. They flee to the city to tell the people what they saw just happened. Then the crowd from the city came to see with their own eyes what just happened. That leaves a good deal of time for Jesus to, to hang out with the disciples and sit and talk with this man. They were able to get him some clothes. So when the people of the city who no doubt have heard the stories, at least heard the stories of the crazy guy who lived in the tombs, maybe they'd had interactions with the man in the city. Maybe some of them were the ones who bound him with chains. We don't know, but by the time the news of the Jewish rabbi named Jesus had reached their town, which it almost certainly had already reached their town by this time, they finally get to see this guy who'd become quite famous with Jew and Gentile alike. It wouldn't surprise me they'd heard about this Jesus character, and when they get on the scene, they see for themselves this crazy, demon-possessed guy but instead of his normal rantings and ravings and cutting himself and assaulting passers-by and flagrant nudity, he is sitting quietly at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And how would you respond? Awe, fear, curiosity? Would it be, Jesus, please leave, That's a strange response, is it not? They were afraid, and rightly so. I mean, naked Norman was clothed, and now you could almost call him normal Norman. What in the world happened to this guy? Jesus already told people what he was going to be doing. He already said this is what he would be on about. Remember back in Luke chapter 4. Jesus begins his ministry by going into the synagogues, the local churches, and preaching about the kingdom of God that it had arrived. Luke 4, 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Jesus was up to. He was proclaiming liberty to the captives. He was setting free those who were oppressed. 
This prophecy has been fulfilled by Jesus. The Messiah was at work. He was giving a glimpse at that kingdom where the lion would lie down with the lamb. He's giving a dramatic sneak preview of his kingdom of what it will be like. It's what he was proclaiming, the good news of his kingdom. The king is here. He just proclaimed his kingly rule over the waters, the waters that he created. Now he's proclaiming his kingly rule over the demons. He is the master and ruler over all things in this universe, physical and spiritual. And he's giving a sneak preview of how one day the order of this universe will be absolutely restored. The odd thing would be if things like this didn't happen. The surprising thing would be if God incarnate would come inhabit the earth, walk the earth as a man, and not do things like this that would leave us scratching our heads. He owes us no explanation for his activity then or now. But it is fascinating and so in tune with how God works throughout the Bible that he does not force himself on the inhabitants of this land. Oh, he shakes them up. He shows up and causes a stir. But when all the inhabitants who see these things and fear ask him to pack up and leave, he leaves them alone. Jesus just did a work of extreme salvation, of transformational power for freedom. Everyone recognized and stood in fearful awe of. These are Gentiles who worship Greek gods, who have a temple to Poseidon just up the hill. And this Jewish rabbi guy just crossed the the sea, calmed the sea, the storms, the waves, and now he just cast out a legion of demons from this guy who had been a public nuisance to their town for who knows how long, and they ask him, please leave. Why? Because Jesus showed up and killed their pigs. And do you know how many families might have had their wealth, their future, their livelihood tied up in those pigs? Who is the real nuisance? I mean, at least the demon-possessed guy mostly left them alone. Jesus just wrecked some lives. So please leave Jesus. And he leaves. I've talked to many people who have the same exact response. Because of something hard that's gone on in their life, like, I, I don't want that God. I won't believe in that God. Because if God would allow this to happen, no, I'm, I'm out. It sounds fairly familiar to the story in Acts 16, the little slave girl with the spirit of divination that Paul and Silas cast out. But the owners of the girl were angry because they saw their hope of profit was gone. And so they had Paul and Silas dragged before the courts where they were beaten and thrown in jail for their trouble. Jesus' transformational power is going to transform lives, but not everyone's going to be happy about that. And remember who it is that they're talking to. This is creator God. He could have provided a lamb. And like, look, this is kosher, right? Not the pig, lamb. Lamb is better. They've been like, let the lamb run up over the hill. And so the lamb runs up over the hill. And then the lamb comes back over off the top of the hill and it's followed by a thousand other lambs. He could have done that. He could have done anything. But instead of them asking Jesus to stay and teach them, or help them, or provide for them, 
or meet up with a couple other demon-possessed guys they have up at the temple. They say, no, we want you gone. And Jesus leaves. But not before we see this last interaction Jesus has with now normal Norman. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Look at the change that's happened in this man's life. Demons speaking through him were begging to not be cast away from their judge into the abyss, into the pit. They begged to be cast into pigs to do more mischief, more evil. Now this man, being saved from such evils, is begging Jesus to never leave him. You want to see a marker of change in a man's life? He can't bear to leave Jesus. Wouldn't this have been a likely crew member for the disciples? Certainly better than Judas. I mean, anybody would be better than Judas, but God had a plan, right? Part of this plan was to send this transformed man back into his own community. He'd go home and speak to his relatives. He'd go back to his city where he'd once been a nuisance and a danger to those around him. And now he would be a radical example of what happens when Jesus gets a hold of a life. He'd be a walking, talking reminder of God's kingdom and what the king of that kingdom is capable of. He'd walk up to Gadara into the temple of Poseidon and tell the priest, hey, your ways lead to slavery to demons. Let me tell you about the God who set me free from them. He could find those boys who used to torture him and jeer at him on their way to school and tell him of the transformational power of Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher from Galilee. He could experience relationships again. He'd be an encouragement to whatever Jews were living there among the Gentiles that their Messiah had finally come. And that their God was the one true living God. What an impact this man would make to his community. Dare we say, even more than the impact than Jesus would have made had he stayed against their will to try to teach them. And in many ways, this ought to be the response of every Christian. Anyone who had experienced the freedom from slavery to sin and death and hell. That one, you cannot bear to live without Jesus. You can't imagine him leaving you. You beg to have more of him in your life. And you spend all your time, you want to spend all your time sitting at his feet. But then the other thing is, you don't do that. That you actually, in obedience to him, don't hide yourself away, but instead boldly go back into his community that he's given you each and every day to share the good news and be representative of his kingdom to those we encounter. Now, at the end of the study, I was, I was faced with some pretty big questions I felt I needed to ask myself. None of them had to do with whether demons are real or what they do today or anything like that. Instead, I'm faced with questions like these. Am I willing to go where the demonized, marginalized, and hopeless people are? Do I have a heart that views the salvation of others as of paramount importance, of greater significance even than the eradication of evils in the community around me? Are lost sinners of greater importance or greater significance than my bottom line? Are they worth upsetting of my own life and comfort? Do I believe Jesus can really release people from the oppression of demons 
of mental illness, of drugs and alcohol, and of the tragic stories of their lives? Is my attitude towards God that I am in desperate need of his transformational power in my life, and because of it, I couldn't bear to leave him, yet because of it, I go into the dark and hopeless places and circumstances, knowing that there is light and hope with Jesus? Am I encountering things that require his transformational power? Or have I huddled away from the culture and the lost and lonely people who need the freedom he offers? I'm going to invite the worship team back up. But I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. That's just the beginning of the questions we could be asking ourselves from this story. And if we grabbed hold of even just one real question from this story and took it, took the answering of it seriously, that could lead to the radical upsetting of our apple carts and the real transforming power of Christ in us and in our communities. I pray for the courage to go there, to go across the sea to the places I'm uncomfortable with that might shake my world if it's in obedience to my king because there are a whole bunch of people around us who are possessed by things and oppressed by others. There are hopeless cases. They are hopeless without Christ, just like we all used to be. They're struggling. They're busy. They're frustrated. They're suffering. They're going through their own hells, their own storms, but they have no Jesus in their boat. God, give us courage to go to them and to obey Christ's command to return to our homes and declare how much God has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. And Lord, we recognize our desperate need of you, of your transformational power. Lord, that there's no hope outside of you, of your power, of your presence in our lives. God, if there's someone in here today that doesn't know you, they have not experienced that yet, they are oppressed, they are possessed by anything, any number of things, would you show them today that they can be freed from that through the power of your Son? And Lord, for each of us, God, who who have experienced that, would you send us back into our communities to proclaim your gospel, your kingdom, to be a representative of your kingdom, and give us the courage and the power to do that through your Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, to leave, I want to uh, read out that um, thing that Jesus read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was given to him in Luke 4. It reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor as he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it has. 
And uh, let's go out knowing that it has, believing that it has, and living like it's true, uh, that with Christ, um, all of these things are possible. Um, So God bless you. Have a good week.